Welcome to Rebuilding. This podcast is designed to help the church rebuild its walls one person at a time. For more information, check us out at www.piercepoint.org. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. These are the words of God. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. I love this line. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Uh, Socrates once said that uh, the unexamined life is not worth living. And in a strange parallel to that, a pastor and teacher that I uh, greatly respect, Doug Wilson, once said that an unexamined holiday is not worth celebrating. (laughs) An unexamined holiday is not worth celebrating. And I full, uh, full heartedly agree with that. In our series on Colossians, we talked about the problem with man made philosophies, man made principles, and man made traditions. And sadly, many of our holiday uh, traditions, our holiday festivities, have become more man made than they have God ordained. Uh, in this case, it's not about, Christmas is not about us uh, creating a holiday that we celebrate, like Sweetest Day or, or uh, Valentine's Day or something like this. Instead, this is where we've taken what God has given us, what God has called us to uh, rejoice in, and we have uh, basically completely turned it upside down, and it means nothing of what it originally meant. This has left us blindly following tradition, and in the case of Christmas, the tradition has been co-opted. It is literally being celebrated for uh, reasons that have nothing to do with Christmas at all, nothing to do with Jesus, at least. As I shared last week, what we're interested in in this Advent series is the connection between the arrival of King Jesus... It's important, the arrival of King Jesus, but also what was anticipated. Because in understanding what was anticipated, in understanding what the people were looking forward to, it actually course corrects us. It sets us right back on the right track to regain the holiday, to regain the tradition, in this case, that is a godly tradition, not a man-made tradition. So we want to anticipate the right things. Last week we saw that Jesus was the seed of Abraham. How many of you remember that? Jesus was the seed of Abraham. But the seed of Abraham had a definition, had a a meaning to it. It's not some obscure theological or philosophical idea. There's an actual meaning to what the seed of Abraham is. And that is one who would bring peace and blessing to the whole world. The seed of Abraham was to be a person who would come and bring peace and would bring blessing to the whole world. Now, there's something important about the peace and blessing that I want to share with you this morning. The specific blessing in mind and the specific peace that are in view. The blessing has to do with salvation. I think we all know that. 
we, we know that even as children. We get the idea that Jesus came to save us, right? So the blessing in mind has to do with salvation. But the peace that we're referring to ultimately has to do with, and this is shocking to people because we, we, we are taught the opposite of this even in the church today, and that is it is peace between God and man. It is not peace between us. Y'all might not like me at the end of the message. That's fine. I mean, I hope not. But the idea here is that this is about peace between God and man. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And look at what verse 18 says. This is, this is truly powerful for what Jesus came to do. Verse 18 says this, now all these things are from God. So he starts to talk about, uh, he's talked about a lot of things, right? And, And specifically with Christ in view and his death and his atonement for us. Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. Right? He reconciled us to himself. We have failed to see what this is all about. We are being reconciled to God because we were enemies of God. We were distant from God. The world loves to preach the idea that God so loved the world. But here's what distinction you need to understand as you walk through that, and especially as you teach your children, and you teach your neighbors, and you share the gospel. There is a difference between being loved and being lovable. Yeah, you guys know what I'm talking about, because there's days when the person sitting next to you ain't so lovable. There's a difference between being loved and being lovable. And the message of the gospel that's been co-opted in our world has come to mean this. God so loved the world. You were so lovable. You were so cute. So nice. He wanted to pinch your cheeks and come down from heaven. No. You were so dirty, he came with a wash rag. Right? That's it. Now, what he sees in you now... You're pretty cute to him, okay? I mean, even Jerry Kluss. You're pretty cute to Jesus, okay? He wants to pinch your cheeks. He loves you. He, he loves you. He loves you. He loves you, right? So uh, 2 Corinthians 5, 18 says, Now all these things are from God. All of this beauty is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ, and look at this, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. I love other translations of this. Another translation actually says, he gave to us the word of reconciliation. What does that have in view? It's the gospel. So, not only did God reconcile us to himself, those who believe, he's given us the gospel to see others reconciled to him as well. Amen? That's that's what we're trying to do as gospel peddlers inside of the world. So notice the same Jesus, so, so this idea of peace and this idea of blessing have particular things in mind. Salvation and peace with God. Notice it's the same Jesus who is the instrument of peace spoken of in Luke 2.14. It will be on the screen for you. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. Remember, it's the angels declaring Jesus' birth with this peace that has come to all the world. So Jesus is the instrument of peace. Ah, but interestingly enough, without contradiction, it's the same Jesus who declares that he did not come to bring peace. 
These are the issues in the Bible where people go, what in the world is the scripture telling us? Matthew 10, 34, Jesus' words, Do not think that I have come to bring peace on the earth, but a sword. Now, I like that, Jesus, just to be honest with you. Okay, I like the sword, Jesus, but I want to know both sides. What is happening here? See, what Jesus is showing us is that for those who put their trust in him, there is peace between them and God. For those who will put their trust in him. There is peace between them and God. But for those who uh, do not put their trust, there is no such promise of peace. There's not even a promise that we will be at peace with each other in this world. There's instruction over and over in the scripture calling us to unity. You know that's something we got to work for? Something we got to work for. It's hard at times. There's times when we don't like each other, and there's all manner of reasons for why we might not like each other. But it's really important that we understand that Jesus spoke both of these things, and they both are understandable as per their context. So, we know that Jesus came to bring peace for those who believe, and we also know that peace is not for everybody. There is a surrender there is a come to Jesus, quite literally, that is required. So as, as a peace bringer, through reconciliation, we can see that the people of the old covenant era were anticipating the coming of the seed of Abraham, but here's what they did not lose in their mind. They had their sin clearly in view. This is something we don't always have clearly in view. We have a gospel that we preach in this world that is void of actually looking people in the eye and saying, you're a sinner. We struggle with this. Why do we struggle with calling each other sinners? Because we've believed the wrong message about God so loved the world. We have translated it, God thinks you're so lovable, he came to love you. No, you were so filthy, God came to save you. Listen, there's no need for a cross if this isn't the case. And as a matter of fact, I can't put it any better than A.W. Tozer would put it. It's on the screen as well. Had there been no disaster, there would have been, there would have been no need for an eternal son to empty himself and descend to Bethlehem's manger. Had there been no fall, there would have been no incarnation, no thorns, and no cross. Please understand this, church, that without uh, a view of sin in mind, this story doesn't make sense. So these people were anticipating the seed of Abraham. They were anticipating someone to come to give them peace and someone to come and give them blessing because they realized they were sinners. They also realized that they couldn't win against the world the way they were. They needed God. We would do well as Christians to remember this, this Christmas season. So last week, I, I talked about some man-on-the-street interviews. What does Christmas mean to you? One right answer to this question would be that Christi Christmas means to me the taking away of my sin. The taking away of my sin. You see, when you get up on Christmas morning and you guys are around the tree with your family and you're celebrating, it is probably, probably the farthest thing from your mind, even as Christians, that what we celebrate is that Jesus died for my sin. He came and he washed me clean. I am celebrating. I am at peace. I have joy in my life. Why? Because I'm not 
I'm not who the world says I am anymore. I'm who Jesus calls me. I'm what he says I am. Amen? This is the gospel, church. This is amazing. So the people in, in, in Jesus' day were anticipating a seed of Abraham. But it is also true that there is a political element to this anticipation. And so today, we're going to talk about the politics of Christmas. You see, at Christmas time, you're supposed to do two, you're supposed to not do two things. Talk about politics and religion, and I'm going to weigh into both in one sermon. Let's see how that goes, okay? So, politics of Christmas. The term politic or political means related to the government or to the public affairs of a country, okay? public affairs of the country. This governing, this lordship is something that Jesus came to do right here on earth. Contrary to popular belief, the kingdom of God is both physical and spiritual. Otherwise, what we're participating in is a bunch of Advent Gnosticism. We think everything's in the spiritual realm. We believe that every part of the Christian life is in the spiritual realm, and nothing is physical. Nonsense. Can you say that with me? Nonsense. There you go. Thank you very much. So we are not about Advent Gnosticism. We are about what is true, and that is the kingdom come to earth. And that's going to demand some things of us as Christians. As we plainly see in Isaiah 9, there is to be a government, and it is to rest upon Jesus' shoulders. So turn back with me to Isaiah 9. Isaiah 9, verse 6. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us. Please say this with me, church. And the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Now look at this line, and don't let it go from your mind. There will be no end to the, say this word out loud, increase of his government or of peace. It's the number one word that gets missed in all of this. Did you know that 2,000 years ago when King Jesus sat on the throne, when King Jesus said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, that kingdom, that rule, that government has never stopped to increase since that day. It has never stopped increasing. We as Christians don't actually believe that. We preach something other than that, and I'll share with you more and more on that as we go. This this idea that the government would rest on Jesus' shoulders was a fact that was well known to those who awaited Messiah. Remember last week in Luke 1.52, Mary connects the birth of her baby with the bringing down of rulers. Remember what she says? She says that rulers... Uh, rulers from their thrones will be brought down, and God will exalt those who were humble. It's a pretty powerful imagery. She's not going, well, Jesus is coming. I guess it's all spiritual. She doesn't do it. She knows there's a physical element to this. It may be tempting for us to assert that our supposed, with our supposed 2020 hindsight, that Jesus only had in view that which was a spiritual kingdom. But we would not be accurate in this assertion. Now, I'm not saying that we go to the opposite extreme and miss the point like the Jews did in Jesus' day. But I am saying there is a physical and there is a spiritual kingdom here. And we cannot miss that church. Jesus declares such things as John 18, 36. My kingdom is not of this world. 
Well, Nathan, that's contradicting what you said. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Or what about Luke 17, 20 through 21? Answering the Pharisees, Jesus says this, He answered them and said, The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there it is, for behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. But here's the difference, church. There is a massive difference in saying, My kingdom is not of this world, as in not of its spirit, and my kingdom is not this world. Please hear what I just said. There is a difference in saying the kingdom of God is not of this world, as in of its spirit, and the kingdom is not this world. That's what we often say. But of course the kingdom of God is this world. That's why we're instructed to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done where? In the spiritual realm only. No, on earth as it is in heaven. There's also a difference in saying the kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed and the kingdom of God is not coming. <laughs> right? There is a, there's just a giant chasm here and they, they don't mean the same thing. As G.K. Chesterton would say, we have to be careful not to keep asserting things Jesus never said. <laughs> we love to fill in blanks. Here, here's things Jesus never said. <laughs> that, there's a reason he never said it. So you would shut up. Anyway, God's kingdom is real, church. It is both spiritual and it is physical. With respect to the physical, it is simply not of the spirit of this world or of this realm, as we just read in John 18, 36. As a matter of fact, there are several points to consider with respect to the spiritual physical kingdom. The first is Simeon. You remember who Simeon was, right? He was the man who was waiting for the consolation of Israel. He was promised he wouldn't see death until Jesus came. We also have Anna, and, and she's an amazing figure as well. But Simeon here, waiting for the consolation of Israel. Here's what Luke 2, 34 and 35 says. And Simeon blessed them, that's Mary and Joseph, and Jesus, uh, because he's there as well, and said to Mary, his mother, so Simeon is speaking to Mary, Behold, this child, Jesus, is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel, and for a sign to be opposed. In the translation of that phrase there, a sign to be opposed, means one who will be spoken against, okay? So Jesus is going to be spoken against, he's going to be rejected, and it most likely is, that interpretation, is why the second part of it makes sense. It's says, and a sword will pierce even your own soul, that's Mary's soul, to the end that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Why would Mary's soul be pierced? Because eventually she will witness her son being crucified, uh, who she is joyful about right now. She's excited about this coming, about this, uh, this truth that she is a part of, but she's going to be struck with this piercing uh, wound later. Nonetheless, Jesus would literally cause the fall and rise of many in Israel. He would cause the fall of people. We actually see this in Herod. We see him be, and we see his kingdom being the cause of their fall. We also see it, and you're going to see it in really clear view at the end of the message. You're going to see the rise of the church. And it's staggering when you actually do the history and you look at the numbers. It's just, it's a powerful powerful idea. So Herod, let's, let's talk about Herod. 
Herod and all of Jerusalem believed that Jesus' reign was both physical and imminent. In Matthew 2.3, upon hearing of the birth of Jesus, the scripture tells us something really cool. Look at this. Matthew chapter 2, verse 3. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. We all get that. He was troubled. There's a reason Herod's troubled. Because Jesus' uh, preacher before him, John the Baptist, has already given him a hard time. And so Herod's locked in. And now the king of the Jews, which is what verse 2 tells us Jesus is, right? The king of the Jews, that's why he says when the king heard this, that Jesus, the, born, the baby, king of the Jews, is there. He was troubled. But look at what else is true. And all Jerusalem with him. That's an interesting line, isn't it? All Jerusalem is troubled at the birth of their king? Yeah, there's a reason. Back to what I said earlier. The reason was their sin. Listen, if these people were righteous, if these people were holy, if these people were after God's heart, you know what would happen? They would welcome their king. But they're not welcoming their king, are they? Their fear is that if he truly is the king of the Jews, if he is who prophecy says he will be, They can't play the way they keep playing, right? So what the problem here is sin, and and Herod knows it. This actually explains Herod's genocide in verse 16. Chapter 2, verse 16. Then when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, I think it's funny that line because he tricked the Magi to begin with, and they repaid him by tricking him, right? When he was tricked by the Magi, it says, he became very enraged and sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its vicinity. A godly king would want that king, right? But he doesn't want that king. So he slew all of the children in the vicinity and in Bethlehem from two years old and under according to the time which he had determined from the Magi who had deceived him the first time. So so I don't know why he's trusting him there. But the point still remains. You can see uh, Herod's sin present inside of this. This is why he's afraid of the physical reign of Jesus, of the king of the Jews. It's actually a strange thought that Herod would go to such ends if this were utterly a spiritual kingdom. It's even stranger to believe that after such a genocide, God would simply do nothing because, well, it's all about the spiritual. That's why God doesn't do nothing. He does something. Herod loses his place and we move on from there. And Jesus continues to reign and it is increasing still to this day. What Herod knew and what we need to understand is that at the birth of King Jesus, the old way of rule was over. So if you write down anything that I say this morning, this is what you need to know about the physical kingdom and the spiritual kingdom of God. Here's what you need to know. Herod knew and what we need to understand is that at the birth of King Jesus, the old way of rule was over. The old way of rule was over. Physically, it had always been that way spiritually, but physically the old way of rule was over. In the spiritual realm, God's governance is always in effect. Jesus comes to earth and his governance begins and it never ceases to increase, the Bible tells us. In Isaiah 9, we see that the Christ child was born to shoulder a government. And that government is never going to see an end. And its increase is never going to see an end. I want to put this in perspective for you. In Matthew 28, the very same resurrected Christ that says, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, done, 
right? Therefore, go. I'm a king. I can command you to do what, what I say, right? All authority has been given to me. And the scripture says in Isaiah, of that rule and reign, his governance and its increase and its peace will never see an end. How many of you have ever heard the phrase or you've said the phrase, it's got to get worse before it gets better? It's got to get worse before it gets better. It's going to get worse before it gets better. I'm going to challenge you. I'm going to challenge you. Here's what I think. I think in some sense this is true. I think there's a way in which it always gets worse before it gets better, and this is the sense. The prodigal son has to reach the pigsty before he remembers the grace of his father, right? So it has to get worse before it gets better, okay? You know this from your life. You know this from people in your life. You know this from your children. You know this from family members. They are headed down a tragic path, and it's going to get worse before it gets better. Amen? You know that this is going to happen. But where I think the church has taken a serious misstep is in the idea that all of humanity has to get worse before it gets better. I don't think history even proves that to be true. You're looking at me and you're saying, oh, Nathan, <laughs> it's a darker world than it's ever been before. Nope. You should study history. You should study history. There was a, there was a psychotic guy. His name was Nero. This was before Roman, uh, Roman uh, persecution of the church had become statewide, had become the whole empire-wide. It was around 64 to 68 A.D., Many of us don't know what Nero did, apart from he burned Christian as torches in the garden, right? We, we've heard that story, right? Yeah, well, he also killed his first wife, okay? He had her murdered. He also kicked his second wife to death. He had her stuffed and put in a mausoleum. I want you to brace yourself because this is staggering when you see the depravity of human life and condition and you look at us now, we look like civilized saints compared to this, okay? Not only does he do this with his wife, then he moves on. I know, this is, this is definitely rated R, I'm sorry. But here's what he does. Here's what he does. He moves forward and he finds a young boy that he falls in love with. He has the boy castrated, falls in love with him because he looked like the wife he just killed has him castrated, and marries him. What is wrong with this world? What is wrong with this world? If you study history for even 10 minutes, you will realize, uh-uh, we haven't grown darker. We've just learned how to sin differently. But it was dark. It was dark at different times, okay, in human history. So what I want you to see is that this idea that, that it has to get worse before it gets better doesn't seem to jive with what history has taught us. First of all, we have to take God at his word. And here's what Isaiah 9 says again. A child will be born to us. Who is that child, church? It's Jesus Christ. A son will be given to us. Who is that son, church? Jesus, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. And at that moment, look at what it says again, there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. 
You cannot tell me it has to get worse before it gets better if the increase of his government knows no end. It contradicts. It says it's going to get darker because what God says isn't true. No. His government continues to move forward. The sad part is, and here's what we're all looking at, the sad part is, is that human sin continues to be ugly at the same time. But it does not mean God is not on the move. It does not mean that God is not kicking down the gates of hell and taking it for his good pleasure. Turn with me to Isaiah 25. Isaiah 25. What a powerful chapter here. And then I'm going to tie all this together with some stats from history that will really show you what I mean. And maybe reorient the way we look at the ever-increasing rule and reign of God. Isaiah 25 says this, O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will give thanks to your name. This is verse 1. For you have worked wonders Plans formed long ago with perfect faithfulness. Isn't that amazing? Whatever God planned long ago, he has worked it with perfect faithfulness. Should you trust him? You better bet your bottom dollar. You should trust him because he has never let anything falter. Verse 2. For you have made a city into a heap, a fortified city into a ruin. And I love, I love this imagery next. A palace of strangers is a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. You have this image of maybe, uh, maybe even uh, Jericho in mind. A city that was destroyed and still to this day has never been rebuilt. Verse 3. Therefore, a strong people will glorify you. Okay? He doesn't talk about their morality. He's actually referring or implying the bad guys. Therefore, a strong people will glorify you. Cities of ruthless nations will revere you. Remember that line because I'm about to bring it back and you're going to see it in a very bold way. Verse 4. For you have been a defense for the helpless, a defense for the needy in his distress. That's God's kingdom right now. That's God's kingdom right now. He is a defense for the needy, a defense for those in distress, a refuge from the storm, a shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a rainstorm against a wall. Like heat and drought, you subdue the uproar of aliens the foreigners that are coming against God's people. Like heat by the shadow of a cloud, the song of the ruthless is silenced. You hear drums, you hear praise, you hear chanting from the world, and God says, watch this, I control the mute button, and I'm going to stop it all, okay? So all of these people are coming against God's people. Now look at this beautiful picture, and this definitely is the second coming of Christ. But look at verse 6. The Lord of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for all peoples on this mountain. A banquet of aged wine, choice pieces with marrow, and refined aged wine. And on this mountain he will swallow up the covering which is over all peoples. Even the veil which is stretched over all nations. So there's no separation any longer. And verse 8 reflects Corinthians. It reflects uh, the same thing we see in Revelation. It says, He will swallow up death for all time. And the Lord God will wipe tears away from all faces. And He will remove the reproach of His people from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. What you need to keep in mind is although that is the end, it progresses to that end. We think God is some sort of deistic God. He just sat back and he's hanging out. 
He's waiting for all things to fall apart before he steps in and fixes it all. The scripture says his government is increasing and it never stops. What happened in Matthew 28 began a progression, began an infiltration of the world. And it has not stopped to this day. It is not stopped to this day. And you might look at your world and you might say, no, Nathan, it's so dark, it's so bad, it's so sinful. It's not if you're looking at the right things. If you will look to the right things, you will see that God continues to push forward. Let me prove it from history. Let me show you, just in the first 350 years of the church's existence, how dark it seemed to get, but how God was on the move. And I guarantee you, it's still happening to this day. Uh, persecution in the early church is something that people don't really have a good historical grasp on. Okay? Most people look at it and say, man, the second Jesus was ra- raised from the dead, it was just everybody wanted to kill every Christian out there. Simply not true. Simply not true. For the first 150 years, Christians were viewed by the outside world as a Jewish sect, just like a Pharisee, a Sadducee, a this or that. They, they were viewed as be, pertaining to that, okay? So before 64 AD, by the way, 64 AD is Nero and his psychotic reign, but before 64 AD, uh, uh, they were viewed as a Jewish sect and there was no Roman or statewide persecution whatsoever. There's nothing. The Romans didn't do it. And if you read your Bible, you'll, you'll see that this is proved. Every person who kills a Christian in the New Testament is a Jewish person who's mad at the Christian outbreak at the church, okay? So they're frustrated at this, okay? So you had Jewish persecution up to 64 AD. From 64 to 250 AD, the persecution in the Roman world was sporadic at best with a really concentrated bad four years under Nero, because you can see what I've shared with you before. He was a psychopath, okay? So Nero continued to persecute the church. Up to, six, up to 250 AD, this went. This is often known in, uh, in Roman history as the Pax Romana, or the Peace of Rome. And there was this great peace inside of Rome until 250 AD. Until 250 years after the church is well-established, And then this leader in Rome decides he hates all Christians and they all need to be exterminated. Okay? Sounds familiar. Sounds a little bit like a Hitler. So he goes in and he begins to make these empire-wide policies to crush all Christians. But who comes next? We all know the ruler that comes next. 312, 315 uh, AD, Constantine. Okay, we have something that changes at that point. Now, why I painted that picture is look what happened. From the beginning of the church to 250 AD, what direction was persecution going? Down or up? It's going up, wasn't it? It started off just Jews, then it became sporadic countrywide or Roman-wide, and then it became a law. Kill them. Just kill the Christians. Now, if we stopped at that statistic, we would say, oh my gosh, The world is growing darker, isn't it? The world's growing darker. But let me give you the statistics on the church. This is what floors me. At 40 AD in Rome, this is just in Rome. At 40 AD, there was approximately 1,000 Christians in Rome. Okay, 40 AD, 1,000 Christians inside of Rome. Okay, this is before Nero, right? Because Rome doesn't care if you're a Christian. Rome doesn't care. 100 AD, this is 40 years after Looney Tunes, Nero, right? 40 years after, guess what happened to the church? 
It grew sevenfold, 7,500 Christians in Rome. Wait a second. This guy's burning Christians like torches in his garden. I'm not signing up on the sign-up sheet. It's not what I want to go for. And God says, aha, my government, my kingdom, it's increasing and it will never stop, right? 150 AD, how many Christians are in Rome? 40,000 Christians in Rome. What a powerful, powerful number. (laughs) Drop in the bucket. 300 AD, 1.2 million Christians in Rome, around 2% of the Roman population. It's 300 AD. Now, around 312, Constantine comes to power. And at 350 AD, there are over 34 million Christians inside of Rome, which tallies to more than 50% of its population. Okay, so hold on a second. (laughs) Kingdom of God, it's not increasing. It's got to get worse before it gets better, right? Sure, maybe persecution will get worse before it gets better, right? Maybe. But God's kingdom has not stopped advancing. God's kingdom has not stopped growing. God's kingdom has not stopped, has not stopped pushing forward. And let me tell you why God's kingdom is pushing forward. Because the people of Jesus in the first, second, third, and fourth century up to this day, even if it's a remnant, knew that God's kingdom was physical and spiritual. They are taking ground for his kingdom. And the world wants us to sit down and wait for Jesus to return. The world wants us to shut up and be quiet and say it's got to get worse before it gets better. No, 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 no. No, 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 no. We have a job to advance, don't we, church? We have a responsibility to advance. And God has told us, here's the promise. My kingdom is not ending anytime soon. As a matter of fact, it will never stop increasing. And neither will its peace. You see, church, people ask the question, should Christians be political? And my answer is, heck yeah. Yes, you should be political. I'm not telling you that you should be like everybody else in politics. Do you notice what happens in Rome? Over 50% of the population uh, became Christian. And never once do we hear, oh yes, because that guy became a senator so that he could change the laws of the land so that it would become more Christian. We actually don't see that. Why don't we see that? Because God's kingdom does work different than you think. But make no mistake, it is, it is a political kingdom. Here's what I believe it is. I believe it's a subversive political kingdom. I believe that when you go and you proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to a dying world, when at Christmas, at the dinner table, you say, hey, let's talk about politics and religion at the same time. And they all say, leave my house, and you say, it's my house, sit down, shut up. (laughs) Okay, so you start the conversation, and you begin to wade into this, and you say, I'm actually not talking about Democrats or Republicans. I'm actually not talking about the world that you're talking about. I'm talking about something altogether different. If we were a people who preached the gospel to the world, and we saw people surrender, we would see the same thing happen that happened in Rome, that happened in other countries, and that is... The Christians just wouldn't fight for their agendas. They wouldn't push forward for their agendas. They kept growing and growing and growing, and then it was too late. Now they're the majority, and now we have to listen to them. Now we have to go by their ideas. 
The, the kingdom of God is subversive, and we need to preach the gospel. So this may sound interesting, but I have one practical step for you this Christmas season. We're, we're celebrating Advent, right? Last week, we learned of the seed of Abraham coming. He's the one who brings peace, and he's the one who brings our salvation or the removal of our sin. Peace, okay? This is powerful. This week, we learn of a conquering king who has a kingdom on this earth. Here's what I want you to do. Be the most subversive Christian that you can be, and just start saying Merry Christmas to every person you see. Annoy the snot out of them, okay? I don't really care. And by the way, if you're one of these people that's got your, got your you know, something in a twist, and you think that Merry Xmas is an is a act against Merry Christmas, learn the Greek language. You'll understand the X is Chi, which was Christ, Christmas. It's, it has nothing to do with Xing out Christ out of Christmas, okay? So when we're thinking about Christmas, as the worship team comes up and as our communion teams come up, I want to encourage you. I want to encourage you to regain right understandings of Christmas. We really need to get our minds back on track for what this is. It's not presents. It's not family. It's not eggnog. You should have all those things. That's fine. But it is about something far greater. And the first century believers, the people who were awaiting Jesus' coming, knew that it was about more than that. They were waiting for something powerful. They were waiting for King Jesus. They were waiting for a seed to redeem them. We need to get up on, on Christmas morning rejoicing in that truth. Amen. Thanks so much for listening to Rebuilding from Pierce Point Community Church. We hope that today's podcast will help you become a more connected part of Christ's body. Remember to check out our website at piercepoint.org for more information.